Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments, that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life, and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and to you we render glory, together with your eternal Father and your all-holy, gracious, and life-giving Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dr. Morrow, welcome back to the Institute. Everybody, I want your Bibles with you, and I want you to have a glass of wine and enjoy the evening together. But most importantly, have a notepad and pen, because when this guy starts teaching, you better be paying attention. Dr. Morrow, welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be here. Can everybody hear me okay? We good? Very good. Wonderful. All right. So um, let me recap. We covered a lot of territory in the last session. We're going to cover a lot in this session. Um, and we have a lot to cover the next session. So I want to recap, just go over a couple of the big points from the last, the last time. So the last webinar, I began talking about Pope Benedict XVI and what he identified as a crisis in biblical interpretation, where he argued that what we need is we need a criticism of criticism. Right? And he argued this because modern biblical studies is not neutral and objective as much as the scholars want to think it is. And because faith, the Catholic faith and the magisterium actually has greater explanatory power when it comes to biblical interpretation than all of these so-called scientific methods of interpreting the Bible. So the, the hermeneutic of faith, the method of interpretation of faith, has the greatest explanatory power. And so that's, that's the first thing. That's what we started with. Then I walked through some of the early centuries in the medieval period into the early modern period of the development of modern biblical interpretation. We were mainly following uh, the work of Dr. Scott Hahn and Dr. Benjamin Weicker from Politicizing the Bible. We walked from approximately 1300 into the beginning of the 1500s with Martin Luther. So the, the lesson we learned, hopefully you remember, those of you who were with us last time, the lesson we learned from Marsilius of Padua and William of Ockham was this is the early stage where the specialist, the, the expert, the scholar, um, is, is seen as having the ultimate authority, as opposed to the magisterium of the Catholic Church. Again, that's a point, unfortunately, that has uh, remained with us to this day, even among some Catholic scholars, unfortunately. So this is not just something that you find among skeptical scholars, some Protestant scholars. Of course, you expect skeptics and Protestants to assume that the Catholic magisterium is not the ultimate authority when it comes to biblical interpretation. 
But unfortunately, that you find that in the Catholic Church as well sometimes. So we move forward from that time period where they have the specialist um, as the, the key for the interpretation of Scripture, and also the subordination of the church to the state, right, which continues with John Wycliffe. And we move to the figure of Machiavelli. That's where we went after that. And the important contribution Machiavelli, the famous political theorist made, was this method of skepticism, right, a hermeneutic of suspicion, that we are going to doubt the text, particularly when it comes to miracles. If there's miracles, obviously that didn't happen. So what's happening? Hypocrisy, right? The political leaders, i.e. Moses, King David, Jesus' apostles, what they're doing is they are trying to trick the people. They're trying to convince them of their political views to control them, right? And where did Machiavelli come up with this idea? He saw it lived among the leaders of his day, especially among some of the bishops and some of the popes in the Renaissance papacy. So he's seeing religious hypocrisy among some key leaders of his own day, and then he's reading that back into the Bible, and he assumes that's basically what all of religious authority is like, and that's basically what religious texts are like. I don't know if any of you have encountered this, but I have to teach a, a core course, a couple core courses for our, our university, which are open to all the students. In fact, all first-year and second-year students have to take these classes. And I find this view to be very common among them, even at this, this Catholic university, um, where they come in assuming a view very much like Machiavelli, that religious leaders, they don't really believe this stuff. They're trying to convince the people. They're trying to... It's a power struggle, right? I had somebody was uh, talking to me recently, actually. Uh, we were talking, they were having a conversation about Orthodox Judaism and about Catholicism and the teachings on uh, contraception in Catholic, Catholic and, Eastern, and Orthodox Jewish contexts and the blessing, the view that it's a blessing to have a large family. And what they were telling me was, this is, this is just subterfuge of these leaders, these, these religious leaders like, like they were mentioning Pope, Pope Benedict. Uh, they don't realize that Pope Francis agrees with Pope Benedict on, on that view. But they were, they were talking about Pope Benedict and some of the ultra-Orthodox Jews that they know. And they said, they, they, they know this is, you know, this isn't coming from God. This is just, they, they invent this to control the people. And I, and I scratched my head and I said, uh, well, the difficulty, there's a lot of difficulties with that, number one. But one of the difficulties with that is those laws, for example, in the Old Testament for Orthodox Jews, they date back to a time when everybody saw a large family as a blessing. And these rules weren't that dif different on the, on the notion of, of relations between spouses from other cultural contexts, right? with the exception that in Israel it was forbidden to kill your children, so abortion was, was considered uh, wrong. You could not do that, right? Other ancient Near Eastern civilizations did practice infanticide. They killed children and offered them in sacrifice to various gods. Like the most famous one is the biblical Molech. So I said, how, if this is going back so far, how could they be using that as a means of controlling people when it wouldn't have been a relevant issue back then? Right? So we, you know, this goes back to Machiavelli and others. And we're going to see today in the 17th century how it, it gains traction. It becomes an even more prevalent view when we start to enter the age of skepticism. Right? That's what I like to call the 17th century. Kind of the age of skepticism. So Machiavelli, 
bequeathed that view to the rest of Western Europe. And then we began the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther, and we spoke about some of the key moves he made. Most importantly, I would argue, uh, following Hahn and Weicker, is his dialectical interpretation, right? It's the law versus the gospel, right? The old and the new. That becomes his important method. It replaces the traditional fourfold sense of scripture, which was important in medieval Christendom. The other important thing he does, although a lot of people comment on this, I think they overdo it, is his reduction of the fourfold senses to one, to just the literal sense alone. I think if we, when we read Martin Luther, when we read John Calvin, and we read the other Protestant reformers, although they challenge the Catholic Church on allegorical interpretation, right, this is nothing new. William of Ockham did the same thing. Marsilius of Padua did the same thing. These earlier figures did the same thing because they were frustrated with how spiritual interpretation, they saw it as being used to support the Catholic forms of authority like the papacy and the magisterium. So Luther did that, Calvin did that, Martin Butzer did that, Philip Melanchthon and these other, or Xvili and the other Protestant reformers did that. But really their literal sense was expanded, right? It included things like the moral sense, how to apply scripture to our lives. So it was a, it was a little bit more of a robust uh, literal sense on the one hand. So that's kind of an important thing. He also created what we might call a canon within the canon. So there were differing parts of scripture that had more authority. You might say they were more inspired than other portions. Right? So the, the letter to the Romans, St. Paul's letter to Galatians, First Peter. These were very important for Martin Luther, more important than the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of John. Uh, so that's important to keep in mind. He also removed books from the Bible, both uh, from the New Testament, like the book of Revelation, as well as the Old Testament, the seven deuterocanonical texts, First and Second Maccabees, Tobit, Judith, Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, uh, and Baruch, right, as well as portions of Esther and Daniel. Um, it should be fair, to clarify though, I don't want to oversimplify, with Martin Luther, he removed the book of Revelation from his Old Testament. So for example, the first German edition of his, um, sorry, New Testament, did not include the book of Revelation. By the third edition, however, he did put it back in. He may not have considered it canonical, but his follower, Philip Melanchthon, who was important for systematizing Luther's thought, convinced him to put it back in the printed edition. So the third edition of Luther's German text actually does include the book of Revelation. All right, so that's where we left off. We didn't really get into the English Reformation. So what I hope to do tonight is... Um, is a little more ambitious maybe even the last time because I wanted to get through the English Reformation. Well, today I hope to include the English Reformation and get into the dawn of the 19th century. It's probably not going to happen. Well, you know, we'll make up in the next webinar, whatever we don't cover tonight. Um, but that's my goal. It's more likely we'll finish the 17th century. So let's, let's start here, all right? So the English Reformation was a quite bloody, tragic affair uh, on so many levels, right? King Henry VIII was a faithful Catholic, at least exteriorly. And to the rest of Europe, he was seen as a hero of the Catholic faith. When the Protestant Reformation began, King Henry VIII came to the defense of Catholic teaching, of the Pope, and most ironically of all, of Catholic teaching on marriage, right? So this becomes an issue we all know with Henry VIII. We all know how the marriage became an issue. 
but it became an issue in the Protestant world of Europe, of mainland continental Europe, because there were a number of princes in the Germanic regions and in Scandinavia who wanted to be married to more than one wife at the same time, right? And so some of the Protestant reformers actually wrote them letters privately in defense of their bigamy, right? So this was in, in a couple of cases, it was two women. So these princes married two women at the same time without getting divorced, without an annulment, without anything. And they were defended by a number of the Protestant reformers in private. We don't know for sure exactly why the Protestant reformers were doing that. Um, we can see how this could be understandable within the context of, of their situation. They were in revolt against the Catholic Church. They had initiated this, this huge revolution, as Father called it. Right? It is, in many ways, a revolution. And it became quite violent very quickly. And they had all these followers. And it was quite tumultuous. Right? So Luther initiated this in 1517 with his 95 Theses. And then what happened? Then you had the Peasants' Revolt. So all of these peasants started to cheer and rally around Martin Luther. And they said, yeah, freedom. This is what we're talking about. You, you nobles and princes are oppressing us. We want freedom too. We're going to follow right, Father Dr. Luther. And, and that's what they did. And so Luther found himself in this difficult situation. Here you have this revolt, this violent revolt of these peasants, claiming him as their instigator, as their inspiration. He's their St. Paul. And they're attacking the princes who are protecting Luther. So this becomes a problem. And the, the princes are, of course, following Luther as well. So what Luther does, and, and this is quite sobering, I think, when we study the Reformation time period, Luther writes a letter to the princes, and it's quite graphic. And he basically says, kill them, crush them all, destroy them. He backs the princes in their, in their uh, violent response to the pe peasants, crushing them. And this is part of where he starts to change his view. Now, again, I think I mentioned it the last time, he never explicitly says sola scriptura, right? Scripture alone, as far as I'm aware. But he does have that famous line, right? My, here I stand, I can do no other. My soul is held captive by the word of God, all right? So there is this sense in which he has to follow what he understands in Scripture over and against the Pope. At one point, he even says, I'll follow the Pope if the Pope conforms to the gospel message, right? Again, as, as Luther understands it. So he's in this tricky situation. And what he decides is, you can't just read the Bible on your own. You have to have studied it after having been trained how properly to understand it, right? And of course, he would be able to provide that training. So... When Luther and the Reformers are defending princes in their, in their marriages to multiple women at the same time, King Henry VIII enters in, and he writes, or has somebody write for him with his name attached to it, a defense of the Catholic view of marriage, that marriage is an indissoluble bond between one man and one woman until death do us part. And, you know, there, I mean, this is kind of an amazing thing, especially when you when you understand the history of what happens with Luther, I'm sorry, with Henry VIII. And it is quite tragic. Henry VIII, you know, he's a, he's a king. We see this with King David. Um, 
you know, this is that time where I think we have to say to ourselves, you know, but for the grace of God, there go I. Okay, maybe I'm not, you know, committing adultery with all of these concubines and women and all these people. That, you know, I'm not a king. I don't have all these people at my beck and call. I'm not the head of the church, the state, you know, the legislative, judicial, executive branches, all in me. Right? So, of course, he wasn't the head of the church at that point, but he had a lot of power over the church. So he was in a very tough situation politically because he was defending the Catholic Church. And then what starts to happen is he puts himself in the situation where he is uh, committing adultery with, with several different women. Um, and there's actually, there's a fantastic book on it. I really highly recommend it. It's actually a life of St. Thomas More. It's by a, a, a scholar named Gerard Wegemer. And the book is called uh, Thomas More, A Portrait of Courage. It's one of the best books out there on St. Thomas More. But it, it's actually a great book on Henry VIII and the English Reformation as well, because it covers that whole time period. And Saint, I canonized Saint, Saint Thomas More, became one of his most important advisors. And I, I would argue that Henry probably would have split with the church much earlier, probably 10 years earlier, had it not been for the advice, the witness, the example, the prayers and sacrifices of St. Thomas More, who was at his side, and became really the lone voice, right? Bishop John Fisher was important, but he didn't have the same kind of access to the king that St. Thomas More had. And so St. Thomas More eventually got to the point, we all know the story, where he had to step down. Uh, and his famous silence wasn't quite so silent, <laughs> as we usually hear. But he had to step down because he recognized it wasn't working anymore. The situation that the king was in was he wanted to um, commit adultery with Anne Boleyn, but she wouldn't do it unless she had the crown, right? So she said, you know, no, no, not unless you marry me and make me queen. Of course, he's married to Catherine of Aragon which seemed to be a valid marriage. It was a little tricky. He had to get a dispensation to actually be married to her because she had been married to his brother. So that was tricky. Enter political exegesis, political biblical interpretation, right? He has to justify this. Now, I don't know how you were taught the history of Henry VIII in school, high school or wherever, but I remember vividly hearing about this in high school. And what I was always told was, he wasn't able to have any male offspring, offspring, male children as an heir. Therefore, he wanted to, you know, leave Catherine of Aragon, marry Anne Boleyn, and when she didn't produce a male child, leave her, go on to somebody else. That's not exactly what was going on. And I think that misses the theological and political point um, completely. And an argument started to develop, and this wasn't Henry VIII, it was his advisors who became. Anglican, once the church in England split. So they became his powerful theological allies. They developed an argument from scripture, and they argued that, no, no, God is punishing you with no male offspring because your marriage to Catherine is invalid. You are an adulterer. That's the problem. And so he would bring this to Thomas More. In fact, they, this is kind of weird when we think about this, you know, who does this now? Nobody does this. But the Kingdom of England sent around a theological question piece to all over Europe, right? They sent them to Belgium. They sent them to German, Germany, to theological scholars at universities, 
to major biblical interpreters all across Europe to weigh in on this, this issue, the king's great matter about Catherine and Anne Boleyn. And that was the argument. He eventually decided that God was punishing him with no male offspring because he's in an illicit marriage with Catherine. He must divorce her, right? Because it is no marriage, because it's his brother's wife. And then he can marry Anne Boleyn. So obviously we know the story. We know what happened. The Pope denied, refused, he refused his request to annul. He said, I can't. I don't have the authority to do that. You are in a valid marriage. You had a dispensation to do it. Your brother is dead, right? Till death do us part. You are in a valid marriage. I cannot dissolve that. And so what Henry did is he married Anne Boleyn first and then divorced Catherine of Aragon after that and declared himself head of both church and state in England. This had far-reaching repercussions. Uh, Historically, it had important repercussions because we start to see then the effect of the Reformation enter England. And we start to see how it begins in a very violent way with the suppression of the monasteries. All right, so this is the one level. The second level is going to be with regard to biblical interpretation. But the first level is here. So he liquidates the monasteries. This becomes very important. We'll see this actually in the 17th century in France because it doesn't work that way in France. But in England, what does he do? He says, look, the church is tying up all of this wealth, all of this land, right? All this land, this money, this territory with the Benedictines and the Carthusians, all these religious orders. And by the way, they're such a waste. I can't tax them. We're not, they're not making any money. They just sit and pray. Um, you know, I mean, King Henry VIII obviously was a fan of prayer. He had hundreds of masses said for the repose of his soul after his death. So something was going on there, right? But that was the first attack, the monasteries. So he liquidated the monasteries, kicked out all the monks, the monks and the nuns um, violently. And he gave all those monasteries to the poor. No, no, he didn't do that. That's what he said. He gave it to his supporters among the nobles, the wealthy. So have you ever heard of the landed classes? Anybody ever see Brideshead Revisited, right, or read Jane Austen? Those, you know, Brideshead, or there's a fictional um, abbey, right, or, or Downton Abbey, any of these, not Brideshead Revisited, I'm sorry, but Downton Abbey or Jane Austen, all of these homes, these huge homes, were abbey. They were Catholic religious orders, and they were given over to the to supporters of Henry VIII and of the Reform in England. Thus, they became landed families. They had land taken from the Catholic Church, and they were able to give that land as an inheritance to their children and their children's children. This, incidentally enough, is the history behind how the term secular, or rather secularize, enters the English language. Right, the secular was the order of the world and time, where God is very much present. Okay, so we have secular priests and religious priests. Secular priests, as I tell my students, it doesn't mean they don't pray and don't believe in God. Right, they're in the world. All right, religious priests to differing degrees out of the world, but secularize enters the English language with the, as the English, Oxford English Dictionary states with the transformation or the transfer of church land to state land, right? But that masks 
the graphic violence of the hand of the state that went in there and slaughtered monks and nuns who were living in these monasteries. After the liquidation of the monasteries, the next thing to go, feast days, right? Holy days. Uh, they didn't do away with all of them. Christmas and Easter still stayed on the calendar. But the king cut out a lot of holy days. And the people were very upset with this. So he had to put down all these protests because they didn't work on these holy days. They went to mass. They had parish festivals and pilgrimage. They had uh, processions and they prayed, but they didn't work. They had family time. And for the king, from the king's perspective, this isn't making me any money, right? Get back to work. And it went from there, the cult of purgatory, right? So the, when I say the cult of purgatory, right, the, the prayers to the saints, the ritual, all the rituals around purgatory, well, that had to stop because the money that was earmarked for the souls in purgatory to give to the church wasn't going to the state. So the king wanted that money to go to him. So again, they cut out a lot of um, the rituals surrounding our prayers for the dead, which is very important. It's a very important practice that we offer suffrages for those who have passed in the hopes that if they need them, that right, they can receive the graces that we can help them with. So that's important to keep in mind. In biblical interpretation, this all becomes very important because he paves the ground for what's to come next, right, with English deism. So what starts to happen is a couple of things. I just kind of want to lay out the terrain here because this will become very important as we walk through this history. Usually what people will say, what scholars will tell you is, modern biblical studies comes from Germany in the 1870s and 1880s. What they don't often realize is that that history in Germany in the 1870s and 1880s, which we'll cover in the next webinar, had a long prehistory already in Germany in the early 1800s, in the 1780s, in the 1750s, in the 1730s. And that history was influenced by what was going on in England in the 1730s, 1720s, 1680s, and 1670s. And we'll, we'll get there, okay, hopefully by the end of, of today. So actually, English deism, right, the deists viewed God as off in the distance, right? He didn't reflect the blind watchmaker. Is there a God, a creator? Sure, of course there's a creator. We're not stupid, right? Um, the idea of no creator, that comes later, right? In general, they believed in some form of creator, but he didn't care about us. It wasn't a personal God. That becomes very big and very influential in England at the end of the 17th century and at the dawn of the 18th century. That's going to influence what goes on in Germany in the 18th and 19th centuries, right? But it wouldn't have existed without the Protestant Reformation's success in England, right? So Henry VIII paved the way for all of that, which is important. But the other thing that happened here with subordination of the church to the state, right, also paves a way for a political, a political inspiration to attacks on the Catholic Church and on Catholic interpretation in general. Now, it's not ironic at all. It's not simply coincidence. It is ironic. It's not a coincidence that what Henry VIII did with the church sounds a little bit like Machiavelli and the prince, and it sounds a little bit like Marsilius of Padua, and maybe a little bit like John Wycliffe. His closest supporters were influenced by Marsilius of Padua 
and Machiavelli. They were very careful readers of, of these texts, right? And they were having uh, Marsilius Zapata Padua's defensor Pachis, the defender of the peace, translated in England. So all these texts, that we, we'd already heard a little bit about these figures in the last session. They're influencing the public policies of King Henry VIII. And his great defenders, those, of, those who were defending him against the Catholics and the Catholic Church, are using Machiavelli and Marsilius of Padua. And so what this sets in place is it sets in place the political rule of the state, really over the church. And this becomes important because when we think about this, we have to understand, you know, why is it, we should ask ourselves, why is it that when England starts to secularize, or at least break ties with Rome, one of the first things to go is the religious orders and the monasteries. We could fast forward the history right to the dawn of the 20th century in Russia, right, the Russian Revolution. Why is it that one of the first things to go are the Eastern Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox monasteries, right? I don't know if you've ever heard of the Gulag Archipelago, these prisons that were set up for political prisoners. They were Orthodox monasteries filled with monks who were slaughtered. And then these, these monasteries became prisons. So this is an important history. Often what happens when states want to secularize or sever ties with ecclesial authority structures, one of the first things to go is the religious orders. And the reason is twofold, really. One is the religious orders have to have land. They have to have a place to pray. Right? They don't have to. They can survive wherever. But they do. To, to have a vibrant daily routine of prayer, they're stationary. Right? They pray. They have the Blessed Sacrament reserved. Our Lord is there with them all day long. And so that ends up right, tying up land that could be used for uh, machinery or once we get into the Industrial Revolution, businesses. It could be used as something that the state, the ruler, can tax. There's beautiful artwork that can be sold, okay? So all of these things are important to keep in mind, but the other important thing to keep in mind is that most of these religious orders are transnational. Again, this is going to be important when we think about the history of biblical interpretation. The fourfold sense of Scripture matched traditional Catholic spiritual life, right? They matched, you know, our, our teaching, our faith, and our practice, our life of prayer, and the authority, right, support structures that are there, right? The bishops, the pope, all of that, it all holds together in one big Catholic family. But the pope is a leader of sorts. And so what you start to see is with Henry VIII, but really all of the European leaders of the time, into the next several centuries, they start to see the Pope as a rival leader to the people within their territory. So the king would say, well, okay, you follow me as loyal subjects, you Catholic subjects, and yet you also claim to follow the Pope. Well, the Pope is off in the papal states, right? He's been returned from Babylonian exile in Avignon, France, and now he's back in the papal states. That's not in England. Right? That's not in Germany. That's not wherever we are. And so you really have almost like a, a two-dual system coming up. 
Well, where does the buck stop? The Pope or the ruler of the state? And so what starts to happen is all over Europe, you have this huge debate going on about where the ultimate authority resides, not just for biblical interpretation, but for all aspects of life, right? If our nation decides that abortion on demand is the law of the land, and everybody agrees, right, who is the Pope to tell us no? We can't, you know, who are we going to follow? The state we live in, right? Or church teaching is guarded by the papacy and the, the bishops in, in communion with the Pope. This becomes a real problem. And so this is actually why Catholics get in a lot of trouble. So when John Locke, at the end of the 17th century, comes up with his religious toleration in England, he says, you know, the exception are Catholics. It's okay to kill Catholics. Why? Because Catholics are terrorists, right? We don't think of Catholics as terrorists. But that was a very real thought in 17th century England, right? When Henry VIII split from Rome, the Pope said, all right, Catholics, you don't have to follow English law. English law is no law at all. So you have all sorts of developments uh, happen where Catholics in England are trying to, you know, um, they're doing a lot of different things. They're praying the rosary. They're saying mass in hiding. And then also you have things like the gunpowder plot, and there's more violent tactics that are done as well. And so Catholics are viewed as potential terrorists, at the very least potential, serving a foreign king, the Pope and the Papal States. So that's kind of what's going on here. That's very important. So when they talk about biblical interpretation, it's not separate from all of these other political events that are going on. It becomes a biblical interpretation in my territory. So the king is going to have his experts, like Occam. Occam said, scripture experts should be the ultimate you know, authority. What does the king say? Okay, well, I'll appoint those experts. They'll be ones that I think agree with me. Very much the Luther principle. Luther wanted people to agree with his method of interpretation. Well, the king is going to do the same thing. So this sets the stage for what's going to come later. Now, we see a movement develop already in the medieval period. There's this debate. We will call it, we'll call it the conciliarist debate, right? And ultimately it is, what is the ultimate authority in a contested issue of doctrine? Is it the pope by himself or a council of bishops? by themselves, without the Pope. Right? The idea is, what happens if we have this theological debate? That we can't come to a conclusion, and we call a council, and the Pope comes to one conclusion, and the ecumenical council comes to another conclusion. Now, initially, this starts as a really, a real deep theological debate, very sincere one. It gets closed at the second, uh, sorry, the first Vatican Council in 1870, and the decree Pastor Eternus on the papacy. But this becomes this important debate that starts to become very political very fast, because now you have the majority of bishops being appointed by heads of state. All right, so that's very important. So the rulers who remain Catholic appoint their own bishops right, with, with papal approval, and the places that do not remain Catholic, they said, well, forget bishops, we're just going to have our pastors that will be at some level, civil servants, all right? So all this becomes important, and what happens then at the dawn of the 17th century is exactly what St. Thomas More and Bishop John Fisher and Erasmus, another uh, Catholic humanist of the 16th century, is exactly what they feared. If we're going to have faith alone, untutored, 
Right? No virtue. We're not going to worry about virtue because it's not works, but it's faith without reason, faith without virtue. We're going to have wars. People are going to fight each other because we can't reason together. And we're not going to be people striving for virtue. Uh, you know, to be fair, I think we, we do see examples of Lutherans and Calvinists really striving for virtue. It's the fruit of, of living faith. We did see that then, and we do see that now. And there's some great examples among the Anabaptists, especially the Anabaptist martyrs. But the theological argument was it's faith that justifies, not works, not virtues. You can't really develop virtues. So that's an important thing to understand. We turn to the 17th century, and we find a continuation of all these wars that broke out in the 16th century. Now, obviously, I know that we don't have a lot of time remaining for this first part, so I'm, I'm seeing that we, we're basically going to end with the 17th century today. We're not going to get into the 19th. You know, maybe we'll get into the 18th, but that's it. But there's a book I, I highly recommend, The Myth of Religious Violence. Really good book by William Cavanaugh. And what he doesn't want to say that there's, you know, no religious aspects to violence, but he's countering that argument that we've all learned. It's actually in Supreme Court decisions. You can look at things like on the abortion debate, for example. Example, You'll actually see decisions that are made. Well, they'll say, well, you know, we have to have a separation of church and state. Why separate church and state? Because of the wars of religion of the 17th and 16th centuries. The idea is that if we just let religions, you know, uh, have a public voice, we're going to kill each other, right? Because we believe different doctrines. And so we look back to the 17th and 16th century. And we envision Catholics and Protestants killing each other primarily because of differing beliefs, right? Mary was assumed into heaven. No, she was not. You know, and it comes to fist, you know, they have a fist fight, right? Actually, Martin Luther believed she was assumed into heaven. But we don't need to, that's a tangent. We don't need to get into that right now. Um, but these, this is the idea. You know, there were debates about the Eucharist. There were real theological debates. Luther and Zwingli. Two reformers debated about the Eucharist, right? Luther pulled out a knife, right? He carved into the table. John chapter 6, real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. And Zwingli said, no, that's impossible. And so Luther called him the Antichrist. So there were all these real theological debates that were going on. But what you start to see as you read Kavanaugh's work and the work of other scholars studying that time period is that in some instances, religious doctrines were used, but for political ends. That primarily, these battles were not primarily fought because of doctrines, but rather the medieval order, the feudal order was basically done with. And you're having vying, right, vying political authorities struggling to survive and to maintain control. This may seem like a tangent, but it's really important because the next stage that we're going to talk about with Thomas Hobbes and Baruch Spinoza and Father Richard Simon is not understandable, I would argue, without the context of the specifically the Thirty Years' War, which was the last and most bloody of these so-called wars of religion, right? The last of these wars, the Thirty Years' War, which ended in 1648 with the Treaty of Westphalia, Right, brought these battles to an end. But what we start to see is, is really odd if we assume these were all religious battles. The last and most bloody, right, the last 15 years, the bloodiest years of the Thirty Years' War, 
were primarily fought between two families, two dynasties of Europe, right? The Habsburgs and the Bourbons. These weren't Protestants versus Catholics. They were the two largest Catholic dynasties of Europe fighting each other in the bloodiest of these so-called religious wars. In what sense were they religious? Actually, and when we look further, what we start to see is many of these battles, these famous wars, many of them, not all, but many, especially after the French Civil Wars, many of them were fought primarily between Catholics and Catholics. And Protestants are teaming up with Catholics on both sides. And so what Kavanaugh's work wants to do is challenge this notion that that religious diversity naturally causes violence. It doesn't. Rather, these were put, these religious views were put to political ends. And what that does is it sets the stage for the biblical interpretation of the 17th century. I think this is really important. I'm not going to go to all of it right now. We'll, we'll continue in the break, but I want to just begin this discussion. The most important figure, at least early on here, that we all will, will probably have heard of is Thomas Hobbes. Okay, He wrote a book in 1651. It's called Leviathan. Actually, he published it in 1651. He wrote it over a number of years while in France. So he actually was born by the end of the, of the um, Thirty Years' War. He was born, Thomas Hobbes was born in 1588. So he was born um, during, during these religious wars. He died in 1679. And in 1651, he published this work. English Civil War was about to break out, so he fled to France. He saw, he read the writing on the wall, saw what was about to happen. And it's in Paris, among a group of intellectual skeptics, that he writes what might be his greatest political work, Leviathan, where he argues for the status quo in the England after the Reformation, that the ruler of the state should be the head of church and state. And he argued this on biblical grounds, right? So he interpreted the Bible to support his politics. Now, in the last session, somebody had asked a question about the documentary hypothesis, right? Which, for those of you who aren't familiar with that, is the idea that, you know, Moses is the traditional figure that's associated with the, the Pentateuch, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? That God inspired him to, to write and compile. Thomas Hobbes is one of the earliest, not the earliest, but he's one of the earliest figures to challenge that in, in Christendom, in, in the Christian West. And what he does is he moves away. He goes through all, you know, traditional authorship of the Old Testament specifically. And if the tradition associates text with one figure, he poses challenges to that, right? When it comes to the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, he says, well, maybe he did some of Deuteronomy, but that's it. And he marshals in his defense simply three verses. That's it. Three very thin verses um, that you could even grant him, and it doesn't make a whole lot of difference to the traditional view. And he dismisses the whole tradition based on that. The important point here is not the authorship. It's what it's doing in his work. And what it's doing is it's sowing the seeds of doubt in traditions of authority and authoritative interpretation. And once he does that, he's able to then redeploy these texts to support his political ends. All right? I want to get to a more important figure 
Spinoza. But before I do, I want to argue something a little, little controversial. This is not mainstream scholarship. Um, it's not what you're going to get everywhere. It's, it's an opinion I have. It's an informed opinion. I talk about this more at length in my own book, Three Skeptics in the Bible. But uh, I, I argue, following the work of a Jewish philosopher, Richard Popkin, that Hobbes probably stole some of his arguments from a figure in France named Isaac La Herrera. It's kind of an obscure figure not a lot of people know about. Uh, and what's interesting here is it plays into this whole context of the political background to this in England and in France. La Herrera was the secretary and spy and many other things to the Prince of Condé, right, which is a very... The Condé family came from a long line of Calvinists. Um, well, they couldn't be too long, right, because Calvinism was only around for about a uh, hundred years at that point. But they were they were Calvinists pretty early on. What happened is, I think, when, and you can this Anthony Marx talks about this in his book on faith and nation. Um, what I think is going on is this: is you have all these really noble, wealthy families in France jump ship real quick with the Reformation after and only after the success of the English Reformation. Right? So these very wealthy, noble families are looking, I think this is what's happening, they're looking over at England and they're seeing what? What we just talked about. They're seeing the king opposed to the Pope, and they all knew that their king, right, Louis XIII and Louis XIV were also, also in opposition to the Pope. And then they saw King Henry give all this land and monasteries to the wealthy nobles who followed his reform. So I think what they thought was, and we'll, we'll end with this, this here, I think what they thought was, if we become Calvinists, we become Protestants, we'll get all this land too. The, 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 king, the king will convert, and we'll, we'll inherit all this, this land. You know, we'll inherit Notre Dame, right? We'll inherit all of this. And that's not what happened, right? And I think I mentioned in the last webinar, there's a good reason why it didn't happen politically. Right, Louis the Fourteenth had a lot of control, and Louis the Thirteenth both had a lot of control over the church in their realm already. They already had concordats, agreements with Rome, where they could help choose their bishops. They could even the cardinal, Cardinal Mazarin, under for Louis the Fourteenth, and Louis the Fourteenth was a child king. Cardinal Mazarin ruled most of France, at least de facto. That's in actuality. That's what he did. He was probably the wealthiest single person alive in Europe at the time, right? And the kings had a big role in this. So they also were able to curb and stop taxes, money that was going to Rome, to the papal states, and they could keep it for themselves. So had they become Calvinists, they would have lost all that money that would have been going to Rome anyways. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have existed. And they would have lost their ability and their control, their ability to appoint bishops and control the church in their realm. So that becomes an important context here. Why? Because the Condé family and La Perrera, I'll leave you with this cliffhanger before the break, were involved in a plot to overthrow the King of France and set up Prince of Condé on the throne. And La Perrera wrote an entire work of biblical exegesis, which was very influential for hundreds of years. You guys have probably never heard of it. Men before Adam, pray Adamite. But for hundreds of years, this was an incredibly influential work in the realm of biblical interpretation, as well as the realm of kind of the early history of sociology and anthropology into the 19th century. 
All right. We'll have to end. We'll end there for now. We'll take a, a break. But when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about La Pereira in biblical interpretation and what he's doing and how this plays a role with what Hobbes is doing and then Spinoza. So I want to recap because I know this is this history is very easy to get lost in. I, I get lost in it myself, and sometimes it's difficult to see the forest for the the millions and millions of trees. It's one of the um, the real blessings. I'm working with Dr. Scott Hahn right now on a book covering this history from 1700 to roughly 1900, 1732 or 1734 to 1893, to be precise. And he sees the four, he gets the four so brilliantly. And sometimes I have to step back to be able to see that. So let's just um, recap. What, what the, basically what's going on with Hobbes, and you'll see with Isaac La Perere, is that they are using biblical interpretation for very specific political ends specific political goals. In the past, what's been going, what had been going on is we, we were basically covering important developments. And the developments took place perhaps for political and theological and philosophical reasons, but they were just kind of stages. Now we're beginning to see actual examples of interpretation that are there to support specific politics specifically anti-Catholic politics. They're not only anti-Catholic. Some of them are anti-Calvinist, like Hobbes as well. Some of them are anti-Jewish, as we'll see. But they're all, it's like a common denominator, they're all anti-Catholic. They're all opposed to the Catholic Church, sacraments, the Pope. That's very important to keep in mind. Right? So Hobbes is trying to support the state. So is La Perere. So La Perere writes this book. He comes up with a much larger list of arguments against the Mosaic authorship of the Torah, of the Pentateuch. Why is this such a big deal? You know, people, you know, I have priests come up to me all the time and say, well, you know, whether Moses wrote this or not, it's not that big a deal. Okay, we can debate that. But, but for the 17th century, it was an enormous deal. And the reason is not because of, you know, who wrote what book, because the tradition said this or that. It's because of how it was used. The denial of Mosaic authorship was used by those who denied it to deny God's intervention in history in the wilderness, right, with, in Egypt and then at Mount Sinai. It's a, it was used to deny God's selection of Israel as a chosen people, and therefore, of course, the church as the new Israel, and God's entrance, right, their exodus, their salvation from Egypt, and thus a, maybe a real salvation through Jesus' new exodus, but especially the Ten Commandments. I mean, and I hate to say it, but of course, the one that, that really gets, gets going is the Sixth Commandment. Right? Protestants and Jews would number it as the seventh, but but it's the sixth commandment. Um, I'm sorry, is that, do I have the fourth for the Protestants and Jews? Yeah, there's four. Yes, yeah, so they would have it as the seventh commandment. Um, Catholics would have it as the sixth. Adultery, thou shalt not commit adultery, and everything that goes along with that. For some reason, I'm not going to go into all the details, but for some reason, that becomes again and again and again. I mean, you can think of contraception later on. That becomes right the point where everything kind of blows up historically with scripture interpretation, 
with um, rejection of things coming from the papacy. We can think about, again, Humanae human Vitae in 1960a. Um, for some reason, this becomes an important point for, for all those involved. I think it's because it's so personal. It's because it's, it, it's, it's um, yeah, I think that's part of it. And it's such a powerful thing. Um, but this becomes it. This becomes it. So they, they're able to get out of that. And so what you start to notice is, as you look at the lives of these people, uh, surrounded by La Perriere and Hobbes, not necessarily those two, they are what are often called libertines of that time period. That's the language that's used. They're skeptics. They're bringing in ancient skepticism back into use in the modern period. And they're living very wild lifestyles with alcohol, with sex, um, with all sorts of experimentation and all sorts of levels. Um, and I, I probably shouldn't, I won't, I won't, I, I'll say this. I won't give you the details. I probably shouldn't say this. I'm working on something and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to put it, I can't publish this because, uh, it's just not appropriate and it would scandalize everybody. But as I'm reading this important Greek scholar of Greek language that plays an important role in modern biblical interpretation, I uncover all of this stuff that's very scandalous, again, about the Sixth Commandment, and how that changes his intellectual views. I mean, I, you know, we know there's people like this. You, you start to meet, you meet with people, and they have a fall. They have some kind of fall with the Sixth Commandment. And then what happens is what? People repent, or they re-narrate things. Oh, well, this isn't bad. And their theology changes. And it happens again and again and again. So I know many theologians whose theology changes. Right? All they, you know, they could just say, you know, go to confession. I'm sorry, I've done this. I intend not to do it with God's grace. Instead, what happens is whether or not they do that, I don't know. Instead, what happens is the theology starts to change, and it justifies these, these things. It happens again and again, and it's happened here as well. So I don't want to say that that's the motive for all of this stuff, but it's playing a role. And that's how they're using the denial of Mosaic authorship. It's going against the Ten Commandments. And the one that tends to come up again and again is that sixth one. So that's important to keep in mind. Well, the, the plot to overthrow King Louis XIV, it fizzles out. It never, it never starts. And the reason is because Queen Christina of Sweden, who was the patroness to the philosopher Descartes, she agrees with Oliver Cromwell of England that they're going to invade France and take over the throne. But they'll do it only after Prince... Condé declares himself king. And the prince, Condé, says, oh, well, I'll, I'll declare myself king. Sure, this is what I want. After you invade and oust King Louis XIV, and nobody could agree who's going to begin. So it never began. It ended. And the prince of Condé became, you know, reconciled with King Louis XIV and became one of his important generals. All right, so La Perriere eventually gets forced or pressured to convert to Catholicism. And he becomes a lay member of the Oratorians, which is interesting. And we'll, we'll see that a little bit later, how that plays a role. So just file that in the back of your head. So we don't know for sure that Hobbes is using his work, but Hobbes is spending his time at Chateau Condé, right? And there's a lot of interesting things going on there. I wish I could... Uh, get into the details. I'll just, I'll leave you with something to puzzle with and you can look up on your own. But have you ever heard of the Marquis de Sade? Some of you are saying yes, some of you know, 
No, don't. I'm, I'm glad. If you haven't, that's wonderful. You've heard, you know, sadomasochism. Um, the, the Saad family owns Chateau Condé to this day. It's a, it's a famous museum. Now, Condé's palace, that where La Perriere was secretary and where um, Hobbes spent a lot of time when he was working on Leviathan, is, is, a, is a museum now outside of Paris, and it's owned by the Saad's family. That's kind of an interesting twist in history, getting it back to that Sixth Commandment issue. So there's some interesting things going on in the scenes. I think it would be very interesting to have God's eye view of what's going on, to be able to see in the spiritual realm what's going on with angels and demons and different things in this history. But we can't. We don't. But we just, all we see is we see the historical developments. We don't see what's really going on behind the scenes. But it's interesting to think about. So La Perere becomes a lay oratorian. Hobbes had been with him in Paris. La Perere's book was published after Hobbes, not quite a decade later, but uh, actually five years later, 1656, and Hobbes, Leviathan was 1651. But already in the 1640s, an unpublished version of La Perere's work was circulating all over Europe, multiple copies. It wasn't published yet. And people were publishing responses to his unpublished work. And this is before Leviathan comes out. So that he uses arguments that are from there, I think is a good, is a good chance that he's taking this from La Perere, but I can't, he can't prove that yet. The next figure I want to talk about is Baruch Spinoza. Sometimes he's called Benedict Spinoza by his Latin name. Um, actually, La Perere typing here. This is kind of cool. La Perere is often referred to as Perarius, which is his Latin name. So you'll see him later if you were to read uh, the work of some of these 19th century German scholars like Julius Wellhausen. <laughs> um, that's how he, he actually refers to La Perere. He refers to these figures that we're talking about, even if modern Bible scholars have never heard of him. And if you've never heard of them, 19th century, the 19th century giant biblical scholars that everybody looks to as the kind of foundational figures all know who these people are. Okay, it's very important. Um, so what I would say is the next most important figure is Baruch Spinoza in this history. And he's important in a whole new way. He's important because the method he lays out is still used. It still is the framework that modern biblical scholarship is, uh, is indebted to. And so what Spinoza's history is very interesting. He knows La Perere's works, and he knows Hobbes's works. Now, how do we know that? Because he has a very well-preserved library in the Netherlands, and those works are there in his library. And that's how we know. Um, De Chive, so not Leviathan, but Hobbes's De Chive was there, and, and La Perere's work was there. They may have even met. Uh, La Perere was in the Dutch Republic, the modern Netherlands, when Spinoza was, and Spinoza had already been reading and using his work. So there's a good chance they may have actually met in Amsterdam. We don't know that. So what we do know about Spinoza is he was comes from a Jewish background, a Sephardic, right, Spanish-Portuguese Jewish background, in Amsterdam. And there was a very vibrant Jewish community in Amsterdam uh, during his time. And what happens is at a very young age, he gets excommunicated from the synagogue. I say very young. He was in his 20s. He gets excommunicated from the synagogue. He gets kicked out. 
we don't really know the precise reasons that he was excommunicated. My personal opinion, which is based on the work, and I'll write this, this name down, of the scholar Adet Vlesen, is that he probably was kicked out not for the heretical reasons that he later gets in trouble with. That's what usually scholars say. It's possible he had those views developed back then, but he may not have. Um, he probably was kicked out, I think, this is just a hypothesis, because he was profaning um, his father, who is dead now, and uh, his father had been a very important member of the Jewish synagogue in Amsterdam, of the community there. And moreover, he threatened the autonomy, the limited autonomy of the Jewish community there. How did Spinoza do that? Well, in Amsterdam at the time, the Jewish community had quite a bit of freedom. They had quite a bit of autonomy. The, the lay kind of secular authorities in Amsterdam basically let the Jewish community run its own juris, in its own jurisdiction. They, they enforced a lot of laws that they had that they were able to keep, including with regard to debts and who paid debts. And Spinoza owed a lot of money, which he blamed on his father. And so he went to be adopted. Even though he was in his 20s, he was still of age where he could be adopted by a non-Jewish Dutch citizen. And that's what he did. He submitted for that. And that canceled all of his debts. But what it did is it got the secular authorities involved in the Jewish community. And it's after his excommunication that he writes his works where he really eviscerates, he's really, he's really destroying the Torah. That's, the, that's his main attack, really, is against the Torah. He's also frightened by some of the Calvinist leadership that's taking over in the Dutch Republic, so he's a little worried about that. Um, so he writes his work, the Theological, the Tractatus Theologico-Politicus, right? his Theological Political Treatise. In 1670, it's published. He was working on his ethics, which gets, gets published after he... Sorry, I hit the computer. He gets published after he dies. So he's working on his ethics, and he interrupts that to write this theological political treatise, which basically walks through the Bible, again, using Machiavelli's hermeneutic of suspicion, right? doubting what can be doubted, right? which is also an important point from the philosophy of René Descartes was a contemporary. Ha, uh, Spinoza's first work was on Descartes. Okay? Now, this is important to keep in mind, especially for the next session, and that is there's a shift that's going to take place. Right now, La Perere, Hobbes to some degree, Spinoza, most of these figures, they either have patrons, or like uh, Christina of Sweden, who helped fund La Perere's work as she helped fund Descartes' work, or they're writing for specific audiences. They're, they're a group of friends, in the case of Spinoza. He wrote a lot of works. He wrote a Hebrew grammar. He wrote a, a philosophy of Descartes, where he critiqued Descartes a little bit. For these kind of skeptical figures, they're called collegians. They're like um, kind of forerunners of the Quakers. And he was writing these works for them to help them think through these matters and to help further their, their work. That's going to all change in the 18th century. What's going to happen is now state-supported universities, particularly in the German-speaking world, they're going to replace patrons. So no longer are you going to get your work funded by these wealthy nobles, these intellectuals, 
Rather, you're going to be funded by universities controlled by ever sec more secularized and anti-Catholic states. And that's going to have a very important impact on what happens in biblical interpretation. But i got to keep, keep going. So Spinoza writes this, and we can do a lot of things. He, he, he challenges miracles very much like, like Machiavelli will, but even more robustly. But I really think his seventh chapter is really important. And the reason is his seventh chapter articulates a very specific method for coming up with a scientific method for biblical interpretation. Hobbes very clearly wanted to bring peace. That's what a lot of his work was about. Right? He talked about the time where uh, there was a war of every man against every man, this kind of state of nature where we're all killing each other. Very different than the Genesis picture of the state of original holiness, right? Um, Spinoza is very explicit about this. He will say, yes, without the state, we have war. And what's the example of that? All these religious wars that we just saw. Catholics killing Protestants. So what do we need? We need peace. How do we get it? By coming up with a method of biblical interpretation that anybody can use. A pantheist, an atheist, a Protestant, whether they're Calvinist or not, somebody's Jewish, Catholic. If we use this scientific method, it's neutral, it's objective. We're not going to bias any one tradition. We're not going to assume any tradition at all or doctrine. We'll all come to the same conclusions. And so we'll stop killing each other over all of this religious strife. So that's what he ostensibly wants to argue. But what he ends up doing is gutting scripture. Okay, he's using a, a kind of a Descartes type approach. What does Descartes say? Right? Doubt everything that can be doubted. Right? We've got to start somewhere. Well, I think this is his famous line. I think, therefore I am. I can't doubt that. Or I could say, I eat bacon, therefore I am. Right? I, I'm sitting here, therefore I am. But Descartes wanted to put that on thought. I think, therefore I am, is arbitrary. As that is, probably more accurate to say, I am, therefore I think. I am a rational being. Um, Spinoza takes that a little bit further. And with his knowledge of Hebrew, with his knowledge of languages, what he does is he walks through and he creates an impossible task. He says, before theology can get off the ground, you want to read this for your spiritual life? You want to read this, this Bible theologically? Great, go for it after you have come up with the, the meaning of every Hebrew word there, every possible meaning of the Hebrew text, after you have exhaustively described the canonization process, what books individuals thought should belong, what was the criteria they used, after you have exhaustively explained all of the historical context, the, um, you know, the cultural background, it's, it's an impossible task. It's a task we still cannot complete to this day. And that's exactly, I think, his point. He doesn't want the theological enterprise to ever get off the ground. And that would prevent the theology, specifically the Calvinists and Catholics and Jews, from getting the upper hand in the political debates of his day. All right, so that's important. I want to move on from there because we don't have a lot of time. I want to try to get through this. Um, to the next figure, Father Richard Simone lest you think that Catholics weren't doing anything in this regard. That's what we usually hear. Catholics weren't really involved until much later, as in the 1970s and 80s. Well, it's not true. 
right? Father Richard Simon is there at the very beginning. He's an Oratorian priest. Now, we've heard about the Oratorians, Isaac La Perere. In fact, Father Richard Simon became the very close personal friend of Isaac La Perere, while La Perere was in the Oratory. Simone seems to have learned a lot about some of the skepticism from Pereira. Now, he's a very tricky figure. In fact, I believe the chapter when Han and Weicker come to their chapter on Father Richard Simone, I think I believe they entitle it The Ambiguous Richard Simone. And he is, he's a very tricky figure to get your hand on. Because when you read his work, his Histoire Critique du Vieux Testament, I'm sorry, my French is pretty poor. It's the critical history of the Old Testament. We saw a critique to the Old Testament. There you, there you are. There you are. When you read his critical history of the Old Testament, I think I spelled that right. What he argues is he is providing a response to the skepticism of Spinoza and of Hobbes and of his friend, La Perere. He doesn't mention the friends, but what he wants to argue is that these are skeptics, and they're wrong. God did inspire the scriptures. This is the inspired word of God. He's doing something else as well. He's responding to Calvinist scholars that he knows, these Protestants in France, that he's working very closely with. And he says to them, look, you guys, you need Catholic tradition, because without Catholic tradition, we don't have a Catholic Bible. Gosh, that sounds like contemporary Catholic apologists, doesn't it? Doesn't Scott Hahn have that line, right? The, the Bible and the church, both or neither. Is that Father Richard Simon? Not quite. So what does Richard Simon do? He walks through what he sees as the problems with Spinoza. And then he multiplies those problems to an extreme degree. He basically walks through Scripture. Anything that can even be an apparent contradiction, he highlights as a contradiction. And what he says is this Bible that we have is completely riddled with errors, inaccuracies, fallacies, contradiction after contradiction after contradiction. If this is just a human document, this is crazy. This is the most ludicrous, error-ridden document ever produced by humans. And that shouldn't surprise us. Why? And this is very important for what happens with the documentary hypothesis and later theories. He says, because what we have is not, right, the word written by the inspired authors. Rather, what we have is the copies of the copies of the copies of the copies of ancient court scribes. That's what we have. So who's inspired? The church. Church is inspired. Therefore, the Bible is inspired. Why? Because the church says so. And so what, what happens is, he says, if you're not Catholic, you can't believe the Bible because it's a preposterous book full of the most ludicrous errors. And then the response would be, well, then why, Father Richard Simone, do you believe in the Bible? Because the church tells me so, and I have an infallible church. Therefore, you too need an infallible church. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't strike me as a very credible argument. It's not very persuasive. I'm a convert myself, and I would have never converted on that argument. You know, I would have said, no, this is, this is ludicrous. I'm not going to believe that. Why should I believe the church's 
is infallible. I don't need your Bible. I know he's talking to people who believe in the Bible. So I, I don't think he was being very sincere. Now, am I correct? I think I am, and I think there's evidence of that. There's not a lot of, a lot of scholars that talk about this. Um, but there, there, there is evidence, uh, twofold, that he was not being completely sincere. And he eventually gets kicked out of the oratorians because of this. So he, re- he actually dies in communion with the church. He, I, as far as I'm aware, he dies as a priest in good standing, but he's not an oratorian. He's no longer a member of the oratory. This is in contrast to a later figure, Father Richard's, I'm sorry, Father Alfred Loazi, who I'm not sure we'll get to in the next episode, but I hope we, we do. We'll see. Um, if not, you've got a, a talk coming up on, on modernism, so that's okay. So Father Richard Simon was asked by the Bishop of Paris to send him his texts, because there were some questions about this. Now, he knew the problems were about Mosaic authorship, because he explicitly argues that Moses did not write the Bible, right? The Bible, the Pentateuch that we have, did not come from Moses, but from later scribes, and there are copies of copies of copies. So what he did is he cut those sections out of the book before handing them to the bishop. However, <laughs> he forgot to remove them from his table of contents. And so, so I mean, it's you know proof that Moses did not write the you know the Pentateuch, the books attributed to him, are still in the table of contents, even though it's removed. And so the censors recognized what he was doing and condemned his book. And it was literally collected and burned on fires. So he was asked not to publish it, you know, or anything like this. So what would a good, faithful, oratorian priest do? Obey, right? I mean, that's without obedience. Um, that's not what he did. Instead of, instead of publishing it in France, he started publishing it in the Dutch Republic, in Spinoza's Dutch Republic. He publishes it in, uh, was it, I believe it was 1656. I have, yeah, 16, I'm sorry, 1678, I'm way off, 1656, that was La Pereira's work. So 17, 1678 is where he publishes his critical history of the Old Testament. He does one on the New Testament, he writes a lot of works, but he puts them all in the Dutch Republic so that he can get them published without censor. And that's what gets him ex, uh, kicked out of the oratorians. This history is important because it, it gets crushed in a lot of ways. Spinoza gets kicked out of the synagogue. His book is ridiculed. Simone gets kicked out of the oratorians. His book gets ridiculed. People publish refutations. Catholics are publishing refutations. Protestants are publishing refutations. So you would think this would just kind of die out. But it starts to survive, and this is really important, in two places. Protestant England and Protestant Germany. That's where it survives. To England first, and then we'll go to Germany, because that's going to get us into the next section. So to England first, it flourishes among the deists, right? those who believe in God, but a God far off in the distance. They love this work. John Locke loved this work. right? John Locke, Locke wrote a lot of things. He's very influential in the history of American politics and, and British politics, etc., he wrote a, a book called On the Reasonableness of Christianity. Personally, I didn't find it very persuasive, but, you know. But there's a reason for that, I think. And that is that he's using some of the skeptical biblical interpretation, even when he's examining the New Testament, and even when he is at least ostensibly trying to defend Christianity and history of the New Testament. Locke had not one, 
but two copies of Simone's Critical History of the Old Testament. One of them, he heavily marked up. Okay, so there's, there's an important influence going on there. The other figure, John Toland, who uh, Hahn and Weicker end their volume with, is another very important figure, another important Thomist. I'm uh, not Thomist. Thomist, what was I saying? Deist. Not a Thomist by any stretch of the imagination. The exact opposite. He's a deist, skeptical deist, who learned very much from these earlier figures like Machiavelli and Richard Simon. And he gave, he was like the epitome of when we talked about Averroes, that Muslim philosopher Ibn Rushd. Here, I'll put this on the, now that I can type. Ibn Rushd, more popularly known as Averroes. I don't have the umlaut over the E, but this is good enough for a Google search. Um, if you recall, this figure from this Muslim philosopher, what, who Thomas Aquinas called the commentator, commentator on Aristotle, became very influential in the Latin West through his commentaries on the Greek philosopher Aristotle. And the way it was received in Christian, the Christian West was this idea of double truth, where there's you know, kind of the truth of the masses, the poor, ignorant religious folk, and then there's the higher truth of the philosophers, the, the wise, right? For those who really have eyes to see, like me, that's kind of the idea. Well, that's Toland completely. He's very much Averroistic in that sense. Averroes may not have been, as my Averroist scholar friends tell me, but that is the way he was received in, in Western Christianity. And that is how John Toland interpreted this work and used it. It's very important. And so when you start to look at John Toland's work on the Bible, it looks very much like what you find at the end of the 19th century. It's already there at the end of the 17th century and in the early, early part of the 18th century. Okay? A lot of politics stuff going on there. We don't have time to cover. Um, I, I know we're not going to get to the 19th century, but I want to just talk a little about how this movement comes to Germany, because this is where it's going to flourish. It doesn't flourish as well in England. What I will say is this about England, is that what you started to have develop, and there's a, there's a fantastic book. I don't think I have it on my shelf here. I'm going to put it here. It's Raymond Tumbleson, Catholicism in the English Protestant Imagination. Right? Excellent book showing what I'm about to talk about. And that is the the ways in which English anti-Catholicism started to use science as a means of attacking Catholic doctrines like the Eucharist and things of that nature. Now, hopefully you know that you know, Anglicans are permitted to believe in transubstantiation if they want. It's not required. But actually, after the Reformation in England, that became a forbidden view quite early. And, and you hear... Theologians say things like, well, we don't really care if you believe in transubstantiation, except that the fact that you believe in that demonstrates that you submit your mind to an authority outside of the state, outside of England, namely the Pope and the Papal States. That's why we have problems with transubstantiation. Well, what's really interesting, and Tumbleson does an excellent job showing this, is that that use of a more skeptical form of science starts to get turned on the traditional Christianity of Anglicanism itself and producing deism and the later skeptical tradition within the Church of England into the 19th century. 
Or they started to use those same attacks against Jesus' resurrection, against the inspiration of Scripture, against things that the Anglicans of Henry VIII's day would have held very dearly. That's important to keep in mind. Um, that's, yeah, I, would just, I would say that about that. So then what's going on in Germany? Well, there's a figure, and I'm going to type his name for you. Johann Salamo Zemmler. An important figure. Right? There's another one. There are, these two figures are contemporaries. Johann David Michaelis. Those two German scholars are incredibly important, I would argue, for transforming theological study of Scripture into secular biblical studies. Even though both of them, especially Michaelis, right, held some form of theological views. They believed in Jesus Christ, as far as we can see. They believed in God. They believed in the inspiration of Scripture, as far as we can, we can tell. Uh, Michaelis specifically held very traditional views. He held that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. He held that Moses wrote Job, which was a rabbinic view from the Talmud, right? Um, and he held that quite explicitly. So they, they overlap. So Michaelis was born in 1717. Zemler was born in 1725. Michaelis died in 1791. And Zemler died in 1791. Oh, they died in the same year. I just realized that. They died both. They both died in 1791. Now, Zemmler is important for a lot of reasons. One of them is that he translates Richard Simon from French into German. So he brings Simon into the German-speaking world. Zemmler also translates some of the English deists. He brings English deist biblical criticism into Germany. Big time. He's one of the most important figures bringing English skeptical biblical interpretation to the German-speaking world. And it's controversial, right? It's quite controversial. There's another figure I don't really have time to get into, but it's, I just give you his name at least. Johann Lorenz Schmidt, who produced um, a lot of works, very important works. He actually translates Spinoza into German. Spinoza becomes... Uh, incredibly important. In fact, do I have these two books right here? I do. I, you know, I'm not going to bring them over here, but the, the Enlightenment Contested and the Radical Enlightenment. There are two books, Enlightenment Contested and the Radical Enlightenment. These are scholarly books. They're massive. They're, you know, I don't know, they're 800 pages. They're massive. By uh, a Jewish philosopher, historian of philosophy named Jonathan Israel. Jonathan Israel. Massive books. I think they are incredibly important, and the, and the big reason is he underscores how central Spinoza was to virtually every aspect of the Enlightenment. Why is that important? Because scholars tend to ignore Spinoza when they discuss the Enlightenment. They tend to say, well, Spinoza was a minor figure. And what Jonathan Israel's work does, in these two volumes, Radical Enlightenment and Enlightenment Contested especially, is he shows that Spinoza was used in virtually all of the debates about all of the topics that became an issue in the Enlightenment, especially the interpretation of Scripture. And there were huge firestorms of controversy, heresy trials in Germany, all right, all sorts of things were going on because of this. So Zemmler is important for that. He also, Zemmler also articulates a complete separation of theology from the study of the Bible. 
Theology has a place, Zevler argues, but not in biblical history. Rather, history, apart from theology, should be how we read the Bible. Right? Again, this is very similar to what Spinoza does, except that Spinoza lets you think that there might be a point where you can do something theological with Scripture. Zemler doesn't even want to pretend that when it comes to biblical studies. Okay? Michaelis' work is uh, important here. Uh, and I have, I have Michael Legaspi's dissertation right here, but it's not easy to get. It's uh, called The Death of Scripture and the Rise of Biblical Studies. An excellent, excellent book from Oxford University Press which Michael published in uh, Legassi, Michael Legassi, let me write his name down, Michael Legassi, published it in 2010 from Oxford. It was his 2006 Harvard doctoral dissertation. This is very well, it's rewritten. It's, it's actually pretty good, pretty easy to read. It's fairly short. I highly recommend it. He focuses on the work of Michaelis for a very important reason. Michaelis is single-handedly responsible for transforming the entire discipline of biblical studies. That might be an overstatement, but let me explain why. And you'll start to see the secularizing trend that takes place in the 18th century. So I believe, and I might be mistaken, you can check on this, I believe the University of Göttingen was founded in 1734. I might be mistaken by a few years, but I'm pretty sure it's 1734. You double-check it. University of Göttingen in Germany. It was. It's really the first... Enlightenment University. It is the first university created to, to kind of emphasize Enlightenment rationality, right? And its purpose was to create civil servants for King George and eventually for the state, for the state, the German state. That was the idea. And so they were doing away with disciplines, with studies that didn't serve that, that need. So theology was kind of in an awkward place. So they tried to make theology politically savvy to some degree. Biblical studies was in a real difficult place, right? So what, what can be done? How can the Bible be reconfigured to fit at an Enlightenment university? Well, Michaelis was a scholar of Hebrew primarily, but also Greek and Latin and of the Bible. All the New Testaments, but his main work was in the Old. And he did a lot of things that we don't have time to discuss, but this most important, I would argue, following Legaspi, is his transformation of biblical studies into a language, culture, and history study. It's not theological. It's not about what the Bible, you know, uh, the doctrines mean. It's not about how to relate it to my life. It's about studying the ancient history and the ancient culture of the time. And we get a window into that through the mastery of the Hebrew language. I Michaelis mean, is actually really interesting here because he's one of the guys, I don't know how many of you have studied Hebrew, but if you do and you look at the grammars and the, the dictionaries, the lexicons, you start to see all these parallels with Arabic and other ancient, other Semitic languages, Syriac, Aramaic, but Arabic, Arabic, right? Like what the Quran is written in. Right? Very interesting. That comes from Michaelis. He's the first major figure in the study of Hebrew to really emphasize Arabic parallels. And this is going to be important later in the 19th century with Julius Wellhausen as well. 
one of the, just to give you a heads up, one of the biggest criticisms of Wellhausen and his documentary hypothesis, and his studies of the Old Testament, is he doesn't really delve into the studies of the ancient Near East, the ancient Middle East, the historical context in which the Old Testament was written. It's not because he didn't know the languages. Okay, he didn't know Ugaritic. It hadn't been deciphered yet, but, but he knew Akkadian. He knew, he knew some of the ancient languages that had been developing at his time. He just didn't think they were important. Instead, he looked to Arabic, like Michaelis. And, of course, he was a scholar of Arabic as well. So Michaelis does a couple things here. He says, you know, look at this history. Look at, where did Richard Simon learn Hebrew from? Jews! And he did. Where did these figures, if you look to Hebrew learning, all the way back to St. Jerome, but all throughout Christian history, what did Christians assume? Jewish scholars and, and biblical sages, right, knew Hebrew better. Let's learn Hebrew from them. Makes sense. Well, not to Michaelis. What Michaelis said is they don't really know Hebrew. Okay, they've preserved some Hebrew. But that's not the Hebrew of Moses and David. And obviously he's right. It's not. Right? Obviously it develops like any language. But what he wants to argue is that he, as a scholar, as a Lutheran, German, Enlightenment scholar, will learn Hebrew better. Right, from studying Arabic and his own studies of Hebrew than any living Jewish and intellectual could teach him. And so he starts to sever ties with Jewish learning. Right, for the first time, really, in the history of, of the Christian West, you know, if you wanted to learn Hebrew or understand this or that, they often looked at what, what were the rabbis saying. Right? Thomas Aquinas may not have known Hebrew, but he, he looked at what did, what did Maimonides say? He actually used Jewish sources as well as Arabic sources and others. He used wherever he could. Wherever he could find gold, he would take it. Right? So not Michaelis. Very interesting. And so what he does is he ensures biblical studies will have a place at secularized Enlightenment universities. Why? Two reasons. One, it's not theological. Right? So you don't have to be frightened. Not theological. And then two, he delved into what was going on already in the study of ancient Greek and Latin, okay? What was going on? Well, what was going on was that Greek and Latin scholars, and this is where, if you read the biography, it gets really interesting um, and scandalous, but the Greek and, and Latin scholars were trying to cut off ties with the Bible as a source of virtue and authority uh, and, and a book of how to behave, Instead of the Bible, especially, you know, the early church, church fathers, let's go back to pagan antiquity. There were virtuous leaders among the Greek and Latin authors. There were virtuous leaders in our own German past, right? We had these German leaders that are virtuous. This becomes really important as a long history into the 20th century, leading up to the Holocaust, okay? But, but even before that, you start to find figures the late 19th century, early 20th century, like the church historian Adolf von Harnack, I'll put his name here for you, probably won't get to him, Adolf von Harnack, who were arguing very much with the early her heresy, um, the early heresy arc, Marcion argued, and that is, and we don't need the Old Testament, that's not for Christians, we don't need the Old Testament at all. And so Friedrich Delich, Again, this is early 20th century. 
follows suit, says, yeah, we don't need the Old Testament. Now, we're talking about approximately 1910. This is like 25 years before Hitler comes to power, give or take a few years. Friedrich Delich argues, not only should we throw out the Old Testament, we should replace it with German folklore. Right? But there's a long history here. You could say going back to Luther in some ways, in some ways, right, with this fascination with the Germanic past. Uh, very important with Wallhausen, as I'm discovering right now, right? He starts to use the Grimm brothers, which we'll talk a little bit about in the next session. The Grimm brothers and what they're doing with Germans' past, and the folklore they are, as a model for how to read the history of Israel in the Old Testament. But for now, what we're seeing is what, what, what the Greek and Latin scholars of Michaelis' day are doing is they're participating in a movement. You have these two, this movement called File Hellenism, right? Lovers of Hellenism, of everything Greek. File Hellenic movement. And it is a neo humanist movement and the File Hellenic movement. And what they want to do is they want to seek for models of civic virtue in pagan antiquity, especially Greek and Roman. Eventually that'll become German as well. And so what Michaela says is hey, you know what? We can do something similar with the Hebrew Bible. Something similar can be done. Get out, you know. Do away the moral stuff. Again, Michaelis, very traditional morality. He's not personally doing away with morality. He's not saying theology chuck morality. He's not saying Christians chuck morality. What he's saying is the Enlightenment, Enlightenment University doesn't care about that, except to the degree to which these virtues make you good servants of the state, of the German state. That's the key. And so what Michaelis wants to argue is there's something we can learn about the Hebrew Bible like that. So what he does is he pushes it back all the way into the past. This is exactly what Pope Benedict says we must never do with the Bible. Push it back in the past and leave it in the past. He pushes it back in the past so that it is dead Hebrew antiquity, much like Greco-Roman antiquity. And then what he wants to do is master the Hebrew language so that we can mine the Old Testament for civic virtues. Look at Moses, great political leader. Now this is going to transition a little bit into, really, the history of the documentary hypothesis, which is really important because if you look at trends in biblical studies, historical Jesus studies, the, uh, and we're going to have to wrap up with this, historical Jesus studies, Right, the gospel studies, they all start with the Old Testament. It starts with the Pentateuch first, the Torah first, the Ten Commandments, Moses. And then it moves into the New Testament, which we're not going to be able to see for today. Right? But I will say, I'll start with uh, the figure of two figures. Johann Eichhorn. Okay? Johann Gottfried Eichhorn, who was Michaelis' disciple and Jean Alstrup, and we'll pick up with them again when we return in the next time. Jean Alstrup was a French physician. He was the Jewish physician to the French king Louis XV. And in 1753, I think it's 1753, yeah. 1753, he published his Conjecture sur la Genèse, right? his, his Conjectures about Genesis. And what he did is he 
argue that Moses did write the Pentateuch. But what about Genesis? He wasn't around for Abraham. So he relied upon sources. And what Arlstruck did is he tried to identify sources based on what? Based on vocabulary. Based on literary trends in the text. We'll talk more about this in the next class. He's doing it to defend Mosaic authorship against Hobbes and Spinoza and La Perere and Simone. And he says as much. Michaelis is worried about that. He says, you've gone too far, right? You, you think you can identify these sources that Moses used? No, no, no. This is, this is dangerous, and, and you've gone too far. His, Michaelis's critique of Ausdruck was then studied by his student, Eichhorn. And that's what's get, what gets the documentary hypothesis started, right? The important thing for Eichhorn is the philosophy of romanticism. And so what he starts to do is use this term mythology in a new way and apply it to the Bible. So now that we're reading the Bible, we're reading mythology. And then the last point I forgot to mention, and we'll end on this, is that Michaelis is also important, like Zemmler, for bringing English biblical criticism to Germany. He goes to London and Oxford, and he hears the um, lectures of, of Robert Loth, who wants to argue that the prophets of the Old Testament are not prophets, fundamentally. They're poets. They're not inspired prophets of God giving his message. They're Hebrew poets. And that secularizing trend, Michaelis brings back to Germany and even translates Loth's work into German and expands it a bit. So all of those, those things are pretty important, right? So what we're seeing here is the gradual secularization of the study of the Bible, which is going to lead us into the late into the 19th century. As these trends develop, it gets further and further removed from theology, and the purpose becomes more and more political, less and less theological. That's probably a good place to stop for now. When we return, we'll next week we'll talk about these other figures and how it goes into the 19th century in the Catholic world. Great. Thank you very much, Dr. Morrow. That was wonderful. You, you really bring out the, uh, the point that we need to be aware of now, how we got here and uh, the situation where secular, secularism is, is rampant and you know, the loss of God because he's taken the Bible away from its original home, which is the church. And so you, you've given us a terrific history. I, I know where this is going, so I'm excited about the next part too. Can you please explain uh, what you're saying when you stated that St. Thomas More and uh, Faith Without Reason? And i got to say thank you, Eric, for finally somebody listened to Father Hezekiah. He wrote his first question, two sentences, and then he posted it again in one sentence. So thank you, Eric. Doctor, the question is yours. What were you talking about there with St. Thomas More and Faith Without Reason? If I, if I said... Thomas More was arguing for faith without reason, I misspoke. It was Luther, is what I meant, it was faith without reason. So it was not Thomas More. Thomas More, in fact, I just published an article on this, Thomas More in contrast to Richard Simone, specifically on the issue of faith and reason. Thomas More had a beautiful balance of faith and reason in that he argued that we need reason. We need to study the textual history, the text. He had very robust arguments about that. Luther was the one who argued that we don't need reason, we need faith. So it's the same time period, but the argument was that we, have, we need to believe, and it's not based on reason. 
It's faith, faith alone. And that's what's saving. And what happens in the next century, of course, is that it becomes reason alone, not faith. I don't know if that makes sense. If I said Thomas More said that, that was a mistake. Great. Uh, you know, I have uh, my own personal question. Um, I'm interested. When you, when you talked about Luther um, not bringing up sola scriptura, when, when did this modern notion come into the Protestant theology? Well, I think the concept is there already with Luther and Calvin and Zwingli especially. It's already there. I just don't, I haven't seen they're using the word. This was tipped off to me in Peter Candler's book, Theology, Rhetoric, and Manuduction. He's got a footnote there uh, where he mentions that David Steinmetz, the great, the late now, the late great church historian of, of Reformation exegesis, said that um, the reformers never used that term, that that phrase in Latin, sola scriptura, doesn't occur in the 16th century. In his defense, I haven't seen it. doesn't mean it's not there. I have seen it in Spinoza. It's, it is in the Latin text of the Tractatus Theological Politicus, of his Theological Political Treatise. Um, and so I think it happens in the 17th century. And Spinoza, in some ways, is more Protestant than Jewish, in some ways. So I don't know if that answers your... Uh, yeah, no, that's good, yeah. Doctor, we uh, one of our uh, participants, by the way, for those that have a video of Pete, you're more than welcome to raise your hand and, and ask a question. But uh, uh, Phil's asking, what's the working title of the book coming out uh, with you and Dr. Hahn? Oh, come no. on now. Oh, no. <laughs> We're, I'm, really, I'm, in fact, I'm really late. I'm turning in my, uh, my material. I'm working really hard right now on the last chapter, my portion of it. And uh, we don't have a title yet. So, okay. Yeah. All right. I'm, I'm, like, I'm a year late. I'm, I'm really late. It was part of my sabbatical project. So, and I'm working really hard, really hard on that. So tell them I'm working really hard. Okay. We, we have another, uh, Ernest asks, uh, he's basically wondering, what was the Magisterium's, Magisterium's response to uh, these figures like, uh, you know, R Richard Simone and so forth? And They didn't respond as a whole. I mean, his bishop responded, right? They had responses of condemning works and censoring, but the Magisterium as a whole did not directly respond. This becomes a real issue um, when you're thinking about biblical inspiration. You don't have treatises on that being written at this time, right? When you think about the first major post-Vatican, major magisterial response, I mean, lengthy. It's really not until 1893, right, with with mm -hmm. Deus and Leo XIII. And so um, what's happening, I think, is it's in response to all the skepticism that these views are developing. So there, there are informal responses from theologians and scholars and individual priests, intellectual priests, and Thomists and others. And then the skepticism just keeps going out of hand in the 19th century. And that's where I think one of the aspects of Vatican I in Dei Filius is responding to that with faith and reason. And then Pope Leo XIII's Thomistic revival, right, with the Terni Patris. All of this is together. Right? And then, of course, it's modernism. It's when, when this kind of enters the Catholic world full force, which I hope to end with next time. We might not, but you'll get it there with modernism. It's, it's the modernist controversy, which I have a book on Loisie in the Bible coming out from Catholic University Press pretty soon. And that's really the issue, I think, is what happens is now all of a sudden it's in the Catholic seminaries, by Catholic priests and intellectuals, as so the magisterium has to speak. And it does, first with Leo the Thirteenth, and then most famously... Pope St. Pius X, 
tenth. How my battery's running low. I don't know how that's possible. And with Pope St. Pius the tenth, I unplugged my computer. Sorry about that. My uh, Pius the tenth in his nineteen oh seven papal encyclical, Crescendi Dominici Gregis, where he condemns modernism as the synthesis of all heresies. Great, great. You know, uh, RJ and Lauren Santucci, who are with us tonight, are going on the Holy Land pilgrimage, uh, uh, are asking um, that how can we respond to uh, Protestants or otherwise that, that criticize the church uh, and say that, uh, that the church used the faith for political means? Well, I would say it's, I'd say this, I'd say um, there are political aspects to all of these things. If, if by politics we mean that, you know, people inter interacting and how do we deal with these things? I mean, you know, the Council of Nicaea wasn't without politics. Constantine called the council because he wanted unity of the empire. I'm not sure he cared much about the doctrine or the teaching of what, you know, the truth was. So there's political aspects to all of these things. That doesn't make them not true. Right? The debates about Jesus' divinity were hashed out partly for political reasons. It doesn't make them not true. He's God, right? So the church doesn't use, the magisterium doesn't use these things for political ends, but there's always been politics involved. This is the most scandalous part of councils, of any time you interact. I mean, what I, would, I mean, you could just say, hey, get involved in your, your local Protestant church, and you'll find there's politics involved there as well. And that's the ugly part. It's the human side, right? Um, but the church does not use these things for political means. Perhaps there have been church leaders who might have done things partly for political means. I don't know if that helps. That's how, how I would respond. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.